Gresham College Presents Maps, Maidens and Molecules by Robin Wilson, visiting Gresham Professor of the History of Mathematics. This talk on Victorian combinatorics combines my interest in the history of British mathematics, particularly during the Victorian period, and also in combinatorics. Now, the word Victorian is straightforward. Most of the events I'll be talking about occurred in Britain in the period of Queen Victoria's reign. But what do I mean by combinatorics? Well, the word's clearly related to combinations, and it refers to the area of mathematics concerned with combining things and arranging and counting them, as you'll see. Much of the development of combinatorics in the 19th century actually took place in Victorian Britain, often by eccentric amateur mathematicians, frequently clergymen, lawyers, and military gentlemen, who found such problems appealing. And an example of this is given in Thomas Pynchon's book, Gravity's Rainbow, where there's an elderly character called Brigadier Pudding, of whom it is said, he was, like many military gentlemen of his generation, fascinated by combinatorial mathematics. So I hope that after today, you also will be fascinated by combinatorial mathematics. And today I've chosen four typical but varied topics to illustrate the subject. And here on the right are some of the people that you'll be getting to know quite well in the next hour. And incidentally, this talk can be taken on various levels, so although I'll need to get technical from time to time, don't worry if you don't follow all the mathematical details, just hang on and wait for the, some of the more historical or light-hearted parts. So I call the first topic triple systems. And I'd like to start by introducing you to the annual Ladies and Gentlemen's Diary, designed principally, as you can see here, for the amusement and instruction of students in mathematics, comprising many useful and entertaining particulars interesting to all persons engaged in that delightful pursuit. And in 1844, its editor, the Reverend Wesley Woolhouse, himself a keen amateur mathematician, presented prize question number 1733 for his, visit, for his readers to solve. So here is prize question 1733. Determine the number of combinations that can be made out of N symbols, P symbols in each, with this limitation that no combination of Q symbols, which may be, appear in any one of them, shall be repeated in any other. Don't worry if you don't understand it. <laughs> Many of the attempted solutions show that its solvers didn't understand it either. And in fact, no one managed to produce a satisfactory answer. And so, in 1846, Wesley Woolhouse made it simpler. Uh, with a, uh, he produced a simpler version corresponding to taking P to be 3 and Q to be 2. And in this problem, you're asked how many triads could be made out of N symbols so that no pair of symbols shall be comprised more than once amongst them. So this is the problem we're going to be looking at. And as you can see, uh, even before you start trying to solve it, um, or to see what it's saying, you can see it's a problem about arranging things. We've got a number of symbols, and we're asked to arrange them into triads or triples in such a way that a particular condition is satisfied. 
Well, to see what's going on here, let's take an example. I've taken seven symbols, n is seven, and so my seven symbols are the numbers one to seven, and I've arranged them vertically into triples, as you can see. The first triple has one, two, four, the next has two, three, five, and so on. And the condition that has to be satisfied here is that no pair of numbers may occur together more than once. And in fact, here and from now on, I'm going to ask that each pair of numbers occurs exactly once. So, for example, if I take two numbers like 2 and 3, do they occur together? Yes, they occur together in the second triple exactly once. Or if I take 3 and 7, they must occur somewhere in here exactly once. Where is it? It's in the last one. 3 and 7 occur exactly once in this table uh, in the last one. And this is true for any two of the numbers that you choose. You'll find that they occur together in exactly one of the triples. Well, such an arrangement of numbers is now usually called a Steiner triple system, after the Swiss mathematician Jakob Steiner, but it shouldn't be. Steiner did nothing on them, and the credit should rightly go to a Lancashire clergyman, the Reverend Thomas Pennington Kirkman, who made substantial contributions to the subject, as we'll be seeing. Kirkman was rector of the tiny parish of Croftworth Southworth near Warrington. His parochial duties were not demanding, and this left him a lot of time to have seven children and do a lot of mathematics, uh, becoming Fellow of the Royal Society in the process, probably for the latter. <coughs> Here are two triple systems. The one we had before with n equals 7, 7 numbers, and 1 for n equals 9, which happens to have 12 triples. Again, note that any pair of numbers appears in exactly one triple. For example, in the second system, take any two numbers, say 3 and 8. Do they occur? Yes, they occur together just once in that triple. Such triple systems are used in, in agriculture, they're used in the design of experiments. They're not just something done for the interest of them, although that is very interesting. Supposing you want to compare seven varieties of wheat. If your fields aren't large enough for you to plant all seven different types of wheat in each field, you can compare the varieties by planting one, two, and four in the first field, varieties two, three, and five in the second, three, four, and six in the third, and so on. And with this arrangement, this means that you can directly compare each pair of varieties in one of the seven fields. Notice, by the way, that this first system, I didn't mention this before, but this first system is very easy to construct because once you have the first triple, one, two, four, then you can get all the other ones by adding one each time. So if one plus one is two, two plus one is three, four plus one is five. From two, three, five, adding one, you get three, four, six, four, five, seven. Five, six, well, whenever you get to seven, you've got to go back to one. But if you take that rule, then you can go all the way through and you get all the different um, triples. So as long as you do the first one, then you can construct the rest. And such systems are called cyclic systems. We'll certainly see them again later. But they've even been used in other areas. They've been used in the theory of music, where each triple represents a chord of three notes, and each chord after the first is obtained from the previous one by transposition. 
Now, one might ask, when do triple systems exist? Well, they certainly exist when n is 7 or 9, as we've seen. But which other values? Well, in a groundbreaking paper of 1847, Kirkman showed, by a simple counting argument, that triple systems can occur only when n, the total number of systems, is one of the numbers in this, in the, in this sequence here. Seven and nine that we saw before, 13, 15, 19, 21, and so on. These numbers are all one or, th or three more than a multiple of six. Uh, in fact, I've, the, the ones which are one more than a multiple of six, I've put one underline, uh, and for the, those are the three more, I've put two underlines. It's easy to see the total numbers must be odd, because if you look here, you'll see that one is compared with, with a pair of of numbers and another pair and another pair and another pair. So one is actually compared with an even number. So the total number must be odd. So that's the first thing that you can learn. You can learn that these numbers must be all, all be odd. And it turns out that they're all equal to numbers of this form, which you can check as an exercise for the reader afterwards. But the amazing thing that Kirkman showed, because this is quite easy to show, but the amazing thing was that he showed that for each such number, we can actually construct such a triple system, and he gave us an explicit construction for doing so. For each of these numbers, he showed how to construct one of these systems. In fact, there aren't very many to start with. There's just one for 7 and 9, 2 for 13, and then for 15, there are a few more than 2, there are 80, and then the numbers actually increase very, very quickly after that. But that's another story. Before I introduce the maidens in the title of the talk, I'd like to look again at the system with n equals 9, with 9 symbols. And uh, here you can see I've written it again, but I've rearranged it. I've rearranged the triples in such a way that, as you can see, in each of these sets of three triples, each number from 1 to 9 comes just once. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. You can see that in each of these blocks, if you like, each of these uh, collections of blocks, uh, the numbers 1 to 9 occur exactly once. And in the, con in the context of comparing varieties of wheat, you can think of each part as representing a season. In the first season, you plant three fields with varieties 1, 2, and 3 for the first field, 4, 5, 6 for the second, 7, 8, 9 for the third. In the next season, you plant them with varieties 1, 4, 7, 2, 5, and 8, 3, 6, and 9, and so on for the remaining two seasons. And after four seasons, you'll have succeeded in comparing each pair of varieties exactly once. And it's easy to see that such a division into seasons can happen only when n is divisible by 3, because you've got to get these blocks here, which means, in fact, that n is 3 more than a multiple of 6. So that, that includes the case n equals 9 that we've got here, but it also includes n equals 15, as we now see. One of the entertaining features of the Ladies and Gentlemen's Diary was that it always contained a number of queries sent by readers, and 1850 was no exception. And in that year, there were queries by Mr. Lug on the origin of April Fool's Day, by the Reverend Hope on the, uh, on the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There's a question by Mr. Herdson on the saltiness of the sea, and finally, a query by the Reverend Thomas Pennington Kirkman. Fifteen young ladies in a school walk out three abreast for seven days in succession. 
It is required to arrange them daily so that no two shall walk twice abreast. What does that mean? Well, if there had only been nine young ladies, we could have used the system here with these four seasons representing the four days. On the first day, one walks with two and three, four walks with five and six, seven walks with eight and nine. On the second day, one walks with four and seven, uh, and so on. And the point is that after the four days, any two of the young ladies will have walked together exactly once. Can you do the same with 15 young ladies? Well, this problem for 15 young ladies now, is now known as the, schoolman, Kirk, 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 sorry, the Kirkman schoolgirls problem, and here's a solution of it. Kirkman never used the, the word schoolgirls. He always called them young ladies. So on Monday, um, one walks with two and three, four walks with five and six, seven with eight and nine, and so on. Tuesday, one walks with four and seven, two walks with five and eight, three walks with 12 and 15, and so on. And we carry on until we've done the whole week. And at the end, you'll actually notice that any two schoolgirls walk together exactly once. For example, if you give me two schoolgirls, say three and ten, then somewhere in this pattern, three and ten walk together uh, and just once. In fact, it's here on Friday. Well, this question was more successful than the one in the 1844 Ladies and Gentlemen's Diary, and here are the solutions that appeared in the 1851 diary. Don't worry if you can't see it, but I think you'll get the, the basic idea of uh, what appeared in the diary. Um, the first solution was by Mr. Reverend Mr. Kirkman, the proposer. And the second one was obtained independently by Mr. Bills of Newark, Mr. Jones of Chester, Mr. Wainman of Leeds, and Mr. Levy of Hungerford. And how they all came up with exactly the same solution, I have no idea. But anyway, uh, Kirkman says uh, that his solution is the symmetrical and the only possible solution. But he was wrong because another symmetrical solution, different from Kirkman's, had been obtained the previous year by the distinguished mathematician Arthur Cayley, shown here, thinking about the problem, and we'll be meeting Cayley again later on. Cayley is a very important figure in, in this talk. Well, the first person to treat the 15 schoolgirls problem in a systematic way rather than by organised guesswork, was another Victorian clergyman, the Reverend Robert Anstis, who had studied mathematics as a student at Oxford, but regrettably no pictures of him have survived. And Anstis's achievement was to construct, a, another, to construct a cyclic solution. And here it is, with the 15 schoolgirls, denoted by 0 to 6 in blue, 0 to 6 in red, and there's a separate symbol for infinity. And Anstis's idea was if you did this, then you could actually arrange Monday's solution to be the top line here, with uh, one going with, with the red one going with the red three and the blue two, uh, the infinity going with the two zeros, and so on. And the thing about this solution, uh, you don't need to check it all, but the thing about this solution is that once you've got this solution, you can get all the other days of the week just by adding one. So if I add one, then that red one becomes a red two, the blue two becomes um, a blue three, and so on. 
Uh, whenever you have a 6, you go back to 0, and whenever you have a fin infinity, you leave it as, as it is. So just by finding the first day, you can get all the others, which is really a rather nice solution. Well, at this point in the talk, I'd like to introduce you to the brilliant but eccentric James Joseph Sylvester, whose chequered career on both sides of the Atlantic culminated in his becoming civilian professor of geometry in Oxford at the age of 69. <clears throat> now, Sylvester believed that he had or originated the schoolgirls' problem. He said this about a lot of problems, actually. In fact, he said so in his own inimitable but somewhat incomprehensible way. So let me tell you, show you what Sylvester wrote. He said, in connection with my researches in combinatorial aggregation, he's now going to explain it, I had fallen upon the question of forming a, a heptatic aggregate of triadic synthemes comprising all duads to the base 15, which has since become so well known and fluttered so many a gentle bosom under the title of the 15 schoolgirls problem. You don't get this as in research papers these days. <laughs> <laughs> I think. <clears throat> and it is not improbable that the question may have originated through channels which can no longer be traced in the oral communications made by myself to my fellow undergraduates at the University of Cambridge. Well, as you can imagine, Kirkman didn't think much of that priority claim. <laughs> so he wrote back. <clears throat> no man can doubt after reading his words, that he was in possession of the property in question of the number 15 when he was an undergraduate at Cambridge. But the difficulty of tracing the origin of the puzzle is considerably enhanced by the fact that when I proposed the question in 1849, I had never had the pleasure of seeing either Cambridge or Professor Sylvester. And then after citing his own paper, Kirkman concluded, concluded no other account of it has, so far as I know, been published in print except this guess of <laughs> Professor Sylvester's in 1861. So that deals with that question. But Sylvester did devise an interesting extension of the schoolgirls' problem. Because if you have 15 schoolgirls, then the total number of possible triples is 455, it turns out, which is 13 times 35 triples. So you can ask, and Sylvester did ask, can we arrange all these possible 455 triples into 13 separate solutions to the problem? Can we ar arrange 13 weekly schedules so that each triple occurs just once in the quarter year? Well, that's quite a hard problem. Kirkman, in 1850, claimed to have a solution, but he was wrong. And surprisingly, a correct solution was not to be found for over 100 years. When uh, Deniston, R. Uh, Deniston of Cambridge, constructed one in 1971. And in the same year, the general problem of solving the schoolgirls' problem for any larger number of schoolgirls We've already seen it for 9 and 15, but how about for 21 or 27 uh, higher numbers like that? That was, again, not solved until 1971 uh, by Ray Chowdhury and my namesake, Rick Wilson. 
However, Sylvester's extension of the problem for these higher numbers, I believe, still remains unsolved to this day. So there's a nice old Victorian problem where it, which still, even today, gives rise to unsolved problems. Poor old Kirkman was unlucky. Not only is he not generally given credit for his fundamental contributions to triple systems, they're called Steiner triple systems, he also didn't get credit for inventing Hamiltonian cycles, as we now see. And it is here that we first meet Sir William Rowan Hamilton. He was a child prodigy. He knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew at the age of five. <coughs> he then learned Turkish, Arabic, Hebrew, Sanskrit, and various other languages by the age of 11. He became Astronomer Royal of Ireland while still an undergraduate and was knighted at the age of 30. And before I come to Hamilton's work on polyhedra, let me just look at some examples. What's a polyhedron? It's a solid shape whose faces are polygons, triangles, squares, pentagons, and so on. For example, here you can see a cube, which is bounded by six square faces. And you can see a dodecahedron, which is bounded by 12 pentagons. And you can have polyhedra whose faces are not all the same. Here's one, the truncated octahedron, where some are squares and some are hexagons. Well, the Victorians were very interested in problems of the type that later came to be set in Cambridge scholarship exams. I saw a Cambridge skull question which said, an intelligent fly decides to visit all the corners of a cube and then return to its starting point. What route should he take? Well, why an intelligent fly should necessarily be male anyway, and why an intelligent fly should want to visit all the corners of a cube, I just don't know. But anyway, here's one such route, uh, shown, I've shown it on the flattened cube. Uh, you just follow, don't squash the fly, you just, uh, you just follow the, the, the blue path. And similarly, we can find a cycle passing through all the vertices of a dodecahedron. Again, here's the flattened version, you just follow the blue path, it'll take you to all the vertices, all the corners, and then back to your starting point. And we can also do the same for a truncated octahedron, as shown in this model, which I'll pass around if you like. Um, I never go anywhere without my truncated octahedron. I mean, the, <laughs> the problem I had getting it here was enormous. Uh, so anyway, you can, you can look at the cycle on the uh, truncated octahedron. <laughs> uh, incidentally, uh, that particular um, cycle arose uh, in a connection with the problem in bell ringing. Uh, but that's another story. I'll tell you about that some other day. <laughs> the question is, can you find cycles for all polyhedra? And in 1855, Thomas Kirkman gave an example to show the answer in general is no. You can certainly do it for a lot of polyhedra, but you can't do it for a particular one. And as Kirkman said in his usual flowery language. If you cut into two pieces the cell of a bee, 
I don't know if you've ever done this, but we get a 13, a 13 acron. That was a Kirkman's word for a polyhedron with 13 foot vertices. What made Kirkman's papers difficult to read is he made up his own language. Uh, a p-edral um, q-acron was uh, a polyhedron with uh, q-faces and p-vertices or something like that. Anyway, uh, oh, and incidentally, his papers were so unreadable that one, he, he submitted one paper. It was a very, very long paper, uh, and Cayley, the referee, looked at it, and he said, well, I didn't understand it, but we'll, we'll, we'll certainly publish the first 40 pages, but we'll forget the rest. <laughs> so if ever you have a paper to referee, that's quite a good way of, of, of shortening them. <laughs> anyway, Kirkman pointed out that the closed 13 gone cannot be drawn in this. Now, here's the picture of the cell of a bee, apparently, uh, cut into two pieces. And this is the polyhedron you get, again, in flattened form. And to explain why you can't draw this one, I've drawn the polyhedron so that each edge has a red end and a blue end. Red end, blue end. So any cycle has to alternate red and blue points. Red, blue, red, blue, red, blue, all the way around. Well, if you're alternating red, blue, all the way around, the number of red points and the number of blue points must be the same. But how many red points are there? One, two, three, four, five, six. How many blue points? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They're not the same, therefore we cannot draw such a cycle. However, if Kirkman did point out that if you join these two blue dots here, uh, then you can actually draw the required cycle. And here we are. It's, and if you follow the red path, you'll see that that's the solution there. In the following year, 1856, Hamilton became interested in drawing cycles on a dodecahedron. These arose out of some work he was doing in algebra called the Icosian Calculus. And for reasons I won't go into, he was looking at three symbols, I, K, and L, satisfying these equations here. I squared is K cubed is L to the fifth equals 1, where I, K, and L are linked by the equation L equals I, K. As I say, I won't go into why he was looking at those, but if you write m equal to ik squared, which you can easily check is the same as lk, then you can prove, I'm sure you want to know this, that <laughs> l cubed m cubed lm lm, l cubed m cubed lm lm equals 1. Good. <coughs> so what? <coughs> well, Hamilton then proceeded to interpret this in terms of a cycle on a dodecahedron. And you'll see why if you let L correspond to right, which may seem a bit perverse, and M correspond to left, if we now sort of trace this through, you actually get a cycle on the dodecahedron. Let's have a go and, and let's do it. So if we start, start here, and we do L, 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 right, right, right. So right here, right here, right here. Then you go left, then you go left, you go left, and you go right, left, right, left, and so on. So if you just trace out the, this, this word here, going, doing the rights and lefts, you actually get this, this blue path which takes you to all the corners of the dodecahedron. Well, Hamilton was so proud of this, uh, of his Icosian calculus, that he converted it into, into a game called A Voyage Around the World 
in which the 20 vertices are labelled with consonants, the 20 consonants, not including Y, uh, B, C, D, up to Z, representing places, B for Brussels, C for Canton, D for Delhi, up to Z for Zanzibar. And the object is to travel around the world and to return to your starting point. And one solution is certainly to follow the alphabetical order, which I've started to do there, B, C, D, F, G, H, and so on, ending Z, B, where you started from. Well, Hamilton really liked this. He proudly sold the game to a games manufacturer for £25, which is a wise move as it didn't sell. <laughs> but anyway, here are the instructions for his Icosian game, and it, con it contains various puzzles of the form. If you're given five initial points... Uh, don't worry if you can't see this, but you've given five initial points, say B, C, D, F, G, how many ways can you complete the cycle? And in fact, it turns out there's the alphabetical way and there's another way which is listed here. And so there are all these different problems. So you're given five points, how many ways can you complete it? And the answer always seems to be two or four or zero, but it's not very easy to predict in, it in, in advance. And here's the game itself. Very few of them have survived, but here's one that I saw at the Royal Irish Academy, uh, in which 20 numbered pegs have to be placed into the 20 holes in cyclic order. But such was Sir William's importance and influence that these cycles are now called Hamiltonian cycles, rather than being more justly credited to Kirkman, who had preceded Hamilton by several months, and who had also discussed cycles on general polyhedra and not just on a dodecahedron. So that's all I want to say about polyhedra, and I'd now like to move on to my third topic, which is the subject of trees. Here's Kayleigh thinking about trees, and in fact, the central figures here are Arthur Cayley and James Joseph Sylvester, both of whom we've already met. Around 1850, Cayley couldn't obtain a professorship in Cambridge without taking holy orders, which he was not prepared to do, while many jobs were closed to Sylvester at the time, who was Jewish. So they both worked as lawyers uh, until the climate changed uh, and they could get academic jobs. And uh, they worked, in fact, at Gray's Inn just near here, incidentally, in their spare time, writing several hundred mathematical papers and quickly establishing themselves as the greatest pure mathematicians in the country. And in the 1850s, both Cayley and Sylvester became interested in tree structures. Here are some tree structures. They're branching diagrams that don't contain any cycles. So familiar examples include family trees, as long as you don't allow intermarriage, uh, river tributaries, and certain chemical molecules, such as alkanes or paraffins. And earlier in the 1840s, trees had also been used by Kirchhoff, Gustav Kirchhoff, in his investigations into currents in electrical networks. Well, Cayley's interest arose from a problem of Sylvester's on the differential calculus, which led to the study of rooted trees. Now, a rooted tree is one where there's one particular point uh, which for some strange reason mathematicians put at the top. Don't ask me why mathematicians have their roots at the top. But uh, this is, this is a, a root and everything branches out from it. And similarly, Ethelwolf is a root and everything else uh, branches out from it. 
and here the root is at the bottom, the whole tree grows from it. But this is an unrooted tree because there is no specified vertex uh, from which everything else branches. Well, Cayley's interest, as I said, was in rooted trees, and here's an 1859 paper of his uh, in which um, he, tried to, he drew all the small rooted trees uh, with a given number of terminal vertices, those are the ones at the bottom, and he said, for example, how many are them? Are there? For example, there are three rooted trees here with just three vertices at the bottom, and then there are several, 13 in fact, uh, with four at the bottom. Well, Cayley was primarily concerned with counting these things, which he did using a device. Uh, I'm going to get technical for, for just for a minute, but hold on. Um, a device invented in the 18th century called a generating function. The thing about a generating function is if you want to know how many there are, how many rooted trees, there's, there's one with one vertex, two with two vertices, four with three, and so It's difficult to keep track of all these different numbers at the same time. So what you do is you you get this expression with x's in it, this power series we call it, where these numbers occur as the a's. So you, have, uh, you might have, say, 1 plus 2x plus 4x squared plus 9x cubed and so on. And you just have one thing to look at. You just have this, this particular function rather than all of these different numbers. Anyway, the, the, the whole point about this is that he looked at, at this um, expression and he looked at a rooted tree and he said if you actually cut the rooted tree, you cut the top, then what falls down below is a whole lot of smaller rooted trees, and you've, you've already counted those, so you now know how many there are here. And for various ways which I won't go into, he, he managed to get an expression here where he expressed this, this thing here in terms of various different functions. And then using this, uh, he found each of the, these numbers A's iteratively. Uh, he worked out A1. Once you knew that, you could deduce A2. Once you knew A1 and A2, you can find A3, and so on. Uh, I won't go into the details, um, but essentially, by doing this, uh, Cayley got the first 11 of these, I think. Uh, actually, he got 13, but only 11 he got right. Uh, so from this table, for example, you can see that there are 48 rooted trees with six vertices. How many with nine? Be delighted to know there are 719 rooted trees with nine. With nine these are branches, actually, nine branches. A much harder problem, where there is the unrooted trees, like this one, where, and Cayley found a way of doing that too. He started at the middle and worked outwards. He got these numbers, and you can find that there are 106 unrooted trees with nine branches. Don't worry about the details. What's the point of all this? The point was that he was able to use these in chemistry. Because it was around this time, the 1850s and 60s, that the chemical theory of valency came to be sorted out. And Cayley's motivation for counting trees was to enable him to enumerate the chemical molecules, paraffins and so on, that have a tree structure, like the one we saw before. So here's a list of Cayley's tree papers. And as you can see, they're both mathematical ones, those are the ones in red, and chemical ones. These are the ones in green. Uh, Sylvester was also interested in chemistry. He'd been fascinated by the recent use of tree-like pictures to depict molecules by the distinguished chemist, Victorian chemist Edward Franklin. And he was convinced that there was a connection between such things, such graphic formulae, and certain ideas from algebra. And, in, and this is lovely, this. In, in a paper in 1878, he really waxed eloquent. 
he was trying to get the link, which probably doesn't really exist, between chemistry and algebra. And he said, in the middle of a research paper, chemistry has the same quickening and suggestive influence upon the algebraist as a visit to the Royal Academy or the old masters may be supposed to have on a Browning or a Tennyson. Indeed, it seems to me that exact homology exists between painting and poetry on the one hand and modern chemistry and modern algebra on the other. Well, here are some of uh, Sylvester's chemical pictures. Uh, at least some of the pictures are chemical, and some of them are more algebraic, as you can see. But the motivation for all this arose from the fact that he had just been appointed as the first professor in mathematics at the newly founded Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And he was faced with the problem of giving an inaugural lecture to a mixed audience. Indeed, in the same paper, which appeared in Volume 1 of the American Journal of Mathematics, which he just founded, he described in a single sentence how he came across the supposed connection between chemistry and algebra. And so here's the extract from this paper. Casting about as I lay in bed one night... Can you imagine today's research papers containing such phrases? To discover some means of conveying an intelligible conception of the objects of modern algebra to a mixed society mainly composed of physicists, chemists and biologists interspersed with only a few mathematicians, and so he continues, I was agreeably surprised to find distinctly pictured on my mental retina a chemico-graphical image and so on. The sentence has got some way to go yet. <laughs> <coughs> Well, as a footnote, if you're familiar with graph theory, or if you've heard of graph theory, you may be interested to know that when Sylvester summarised the results of this paper in Nature in 1878, he described the link between chemical atoms and algebraic expressions, called binary quantics, ending up with every invariant and covariant becomes expressible by a graph. And this is the first ever appearance of the word graph in the context of graph theory. <coughs> well, before I leave Sylvester... Uh, I should remark that studying him can be very frustrating because his letters are rather difficult to read. In fact, I can't resist showing you this extract from this letter to the German mathematician Felix Klein. <coughs> uh, dear Professor Klein, <coughs> I find some difficulty in making out some of, the, some of the words in your highly esteemed letter. <laughs> and would take it as a great favour if you could write a little more clearly for my behalf, as I am not very familiar with German handwriting. <coughs> so that's the last we'll hear of Sylvester. <coughs> a very fine mathematician. Well, no talk about Victorian combinatorics would be complete without a mention of map colouring, and in particular the celebrated four-colour problem. In October 1852, Francis Guthrie, a former student at University College London, was colouring a map of England and noticed that he needed only four colours to colour it so that neighbouring counties were differently coloured. Is this true for all maps, he wondered. Well, his brother Frederick then asked his teacher, Augustus de Morgan, professor of mathematics at University College, who immediately became fascinated with the problem and communicated it to, its fr to his friends. So here's the first appearance of the problem, a letter from De Morgan to Sir William Rowan Hamilton, dated 23rd of October, 1852. A student of mine asked me today 
For a fact which I, did, which I did not know was a fact, and do not yet. He says that if a figure be anyhow divided and the compartments differently coloured, so that figures with any co portion of common boundary line are differently coloured, four colours may be wanted, but not more. Uh, he gives an example where you actually need four colours. Query, cannot a necessity for five or more be invented? So you're colouring a map, you've got only four colours available, can you colour the whole map so that neighbouring countries are differently coloured? That's the four colour problem. Well, De Morgan also wrote about the problem to the... Uh, he wrote about it to his various friends, the philosopher William Hewell, Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. And in fact, it was in the middle of an unsigned book review, actually by De Morgan, of Hewell's philosophy of discovery, that the problem first appeared in print in a very strange passage. It wasn't just Sylvester that wrote in a strange way. <clears throat> uh, De Morgan described the problem saying what it is, and then said, now it must have been always known to map colourers that four different colours are enough. Okay, that's fine. Let the counties come cranking in, as Hotspur says, with as many and as odd convolutions as the designer chooses to give them. Let them go in and out and round about in such a manner that it would be quite absurd in the Queen's writ to tell the sheriff that A.B. could run up and down in his bailiwick. Still, four colours will be enough to make all requisite distinction. So that's perfectly clear. <laughs> well, a few years after De Morgan's death, our friend Arthur Cayley raised the question again at a meeting of the London Mathematical Society. And in the following year, in 1879, a proof that four colours are sufficient was given by Alfred Kemp. Not a professional mathematician, a London barrister, who'd studied at Cambridge with Cayley and who later became treasurer of the Royal Society. Kemp's proof was essentially as follows. It's a bit technical, but it doesn't last long. So this is, <clears throat> this is where I'm just going to give you um, the, Kemp's proof that every map could be four-coloured. And as I said, it's, it's incorrect, but see if you can see where it goes wrong. Okay, <clears throat> as I said, it doesn't last long. Let's assume that it's not true that every map can be four-coloured. That means that there are maps that can't be four-coloured. And if there are maps that can't be four-coloured, there must be a smallest one. Okay? So let's take one with the smallest number of countries. That means it can't be four-coloured, but any smaller one can be. Okay? Well, there's a result in mathematics called Euler's polyhedron formula, which I won't go into, but it says that in any map, you can always find a country with at most five neighbours, say a triangle or a quadrilateral, say a square or a pentagon. Well, if there's a triangle somewhere in the map, then we can prove the result. Because what we do is we just shrink it to a point. If we shrink it to a point, we've got a map with fewer colours, with fewer countries. If it's got fewer countries, we can colour it with four colours. Now let's put this back again. We've coloured the rest of it with four colours, but these three around the triangle only take up three colours. And we've got four colours. Therefore, there's a spare colour to colour the one in the middle. And so that gives you a four-colouring of the whole map, which, as I say, can't be the case. We'd assume that didn't happen. So we've dealt with the case where there's a triangle. The square is where Kemp made his great contribution. He said, supposing there's a square, well, the, it, if you've got the four colours around it, You've got, if three of the colours 
if you've only got three different colors, then you've got a spare color to color the one in the middle. But if these are all different, you're really stuck. There's no spare color to color the one in the middle. And what you do here is you choose two colors, say red and green, and you look at the red and green part of the map. And you say, is the red-green part of the map out of here joined to the red-green part down here? Here are the two situations. Here you've got some reds and greens up here, reds and greens down there. But here, and they don't join up. Here you've got reds and greens, but they all link up somewhere around the side. In this case, the situation is easy because if I now interchange the reds and greens here, then I've got a green, this red becomes green, green becomes red, red becomes green, green becomes red, this becomes green, that's green, and therefore I've got a, I can then color the one in the middle red. So that completes the coloring of the map. But if you've got this link of countries here, if I change that to green, that to red, and so on, and go all the way around, I'm no better off than I was before. Because if this is green and this is red, I'm just as badly off as to start with. But what Kemp noticed is that if you've got this ring of reds and greens and now start looking at blues and yellows or blues and oranges, the blues and oranges over here must be separated from the blues and oranges here because this great big thing gets in the way. So in that case, you interchange the blues and oranges here. It doesn't affect that. So that's still orange. That's now orange. And now you can color that one blue. So in that case as well, you can complete the coloring. So we've dealt with the case where there's a square. Finally, the pentagon, Kemp says, you do the same thing. You shrink it to, the point, to a point, color the rest of it, bring it back again, and you've got a, a situation like this. And you notice that there are two reds here, or two the same. And then by doing two of these interchanges of color, you replace this red by something else, say green, and you replace this red by something else, say yellow, and then you can then color the one in the middle red. So by doing two interchanges of color, you can complete the coloring. So that is how Kemp tried to prove the four-color theorem. And his proof was a very good proof. It was wrong, but it was a very good wrong proof because it took everyone in for 11 years. There aren't many mathematical wrong proofs that last that long. But the great bombshell came in 1890 when Percy Hayward of Durham pointed out an error. Percy Hayward is another of these eccentric types. Um, Hayward had first learned about the problem in 1880 while an undergraduate in Oxford, and he became hooked. In fact, he wrote several papers on the subject, his last appearing when he was aged 90. Well, like several others in this, in this talk, as I say, he's somewhat eccentric. For example, he used to set his watch just once a year on Christmas Day. And the story goes that a, a friend once asked him the time, and when he, said, when he told them, he said, you're two hours fast. No reply, Hayward doing the necessary calculation, I'm ten hours slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hayward's paper was a bombshell, because what he actually showed was he, he pointed out an error in Kemp's proof, he actually salvaged enough to show that every map can be coloured with five colours, which is, again, quite a contribution. And he also tried to generalise the problem to other surfaces, which I'll be ending, up, ending with in, in just a couple of minutes' time. But where did Kemp ro go wrong? Well, 
This is the map that Hayward gave to show where Kemp went wrong. Uh, as you can see, it can be colored with four colors. Uh, but what Kemp had tried to do is he tried to do two interchanges of color at the same time. And I'm, and I'm going to show, use, Kay, use Hayward's example to show why that's not possible. So this is a, oh, rather complicated, I'm afraid. <coughs> right. So here's Hayward's example. We've seen that it can be colored, but I want to use this to show that you cannot do two color interchanges at the same time, which is what Kemp had tried to do. Uh, you've, got, you've colored everything except this one in the middle. And the first thing you notice is that this blue and this yellow are joined by a chain of blues and yellows. Okay? So if you look at the reds and greens up here and the reds and greens down here, they must be separated because this gets in the way. So you've got the reds and greens up here, reds and greens down there, they must be separated, and therefore you can interchange the reds and greens at the top. Red becomes green, green becomes red, red becomes green, green becomes red, red becomes green, green becomes red. And so you can do an interchange of colors, and there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? There's nothing wrong with interchanging those reds and greens. Encouraged by our success, let's have another go. You notice that this blue and this green are joined by a blue-green chain of countries, which means that the yellows and reds up here must be separated from the yellows and reds down there because this gets in the way. So I can interchange the yellows and reds down here without affecting the ones up here. So let's do that. Red becomes yellow, yellow becomes red, red becomes yellow, yellow becomes red, red becomes yellow, yellow becomes red. So I can do that change of inter inter interchange of colors. There's nothing wrong with interchanging those yellows and reds. But what Kemp tried to do was to do two chain interchanges at the same time. What happens if you do that? Well, you've got this one and you've got the earlier one. And you now notice that this country, which was green, has become red. This one, which was yellow, has become red. We've got two reds together. So somewhere, somewhere in the map, things can go wrong if you try to do two interchanges of color. Well, don't worry about the details of that. The important thing is that that, that, that was a really serious problem. Uh, the error proved very difficult to patch up. And in fact, it took a further 86 years to do so. But the eventual proof by Kenneth Appel and Wolfgang Harkin uh, use two important ideas that can be traced back to Kemp, which I'll just outline briefly. The first is that of an unavoidable set. So here you're going to see a proof of the four-color theorem. <coughs> Not in full detail. <laughs> the first idea from Kemp is of an unavoidable set. Every map contains, at worst, a pentagon. It, it contains, say, a triangle, a square, or a pentagon. And we saw that we could, we could deal with the, with the triangle and the square, but we can't deal with the pentagon. So let's replace it by other things. And in fact, someone showed in 1904, Wernicke, that in fact you can replace the pentagon by to jo a joined pentagon or a pentagon joined to a hexagon. So what we're saying is that either you've got these configurations, a triangle or a square, or you've got a pentagon. And if you've got a pentagon, you must have two joined ones 
or one joint of a hexagon. And so you test all of those. And if those don't work, you replace them by more and more complicated things. And you, get, you can get thousands uh, of, of things in your unavoidable sets. We also saw that um, we can deal with the triangle, we can deal with the square, we couldn't deal with the pentagon. So we can say, well, what can we deal with? We say they're reducible if you can deal with them. If a colouring of the rest of the map can be extended to what's in the middle. Um, the American mathematician Birkhoff showed that this collection of four pentagons you can also always deal with. You've coloured the rest of the map, you can extend it to what's in the middle. And you can get more and more of these configurations. In fact, you can get thousands of them. And over the ensuing years, people found thousands of these reducible configurations. And to prove the, the uh, four-colour theorem, what you need to do is you need to find an unavoidable set of reducible configurations. What does that mean? Unavoidable means that if you give me any map, it must have at least one of these configurations. And to say they're reducible means that whatever one it contains, whatever one or more it contains, you can then finish the colouring of the map. So an unavoidable set of reducible configurations. Unavoidable means that uh, they must exist somewhere in the map, and reducible means that you can deal with it, whatever, whatever appears. And uh, these following ideas of Heisch, a German mathematician, Appel and Harkin solved the problem by finding an unavoidable set of no fewer than 1,936 different reducible configurations, all really quite complicated. But they actually did solve the problem in 1976. And incidentally, a date for your diaries for next year. Um, you remember the original letter from De Morgan to Hamilton on 23rd of October, uh, 1852. Well, 23rd of October next year marks the 150th anniversary of the four-colour problem, and there's going to be a special symposium on the subject in London, uh, Appel and Harkin are both going to be speaking, uh, as, as well as various other people, and it'll be somewhere in London, possibly University College, possibly here, who knows. But anyway, uh, keep your eye out for that. <coughs> well, I've got about three more minutes, so I'd, I'd like to conclude by returning very briefly to Hayward's 1890 paper and to his attempted extension of the four-colour problem to other surfaces. When you colour maps on the plane, or on a sheet of paper, it's essentially the same as colouring maps on the globe, isn't it? Or on a sphere. In fact, you can get from one to the other. If you've got a, a map on the plane, you can project it up onto a sphere. Or if you've got a map on the sphere, you can project it down onto the plane. So if, if you can solve the four-colour problem uh, for maps on the plane, then you can also do it for maps on a globe, on a sphere. So being mathematicians, we like generalise on a torus, that's a rubber ring or a donut. You may not have tried to colour maps on donuts, but uh, you might say, how many colours do you need to do that? And it turns out that seven is the magic number here. This is four is the magic number for the sphere. Seven is the magic number here. It turns out that given, given colouring maps on, 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 a, on a torus, every map can be coloured with seven colours. And moreover, as you can see here, there are maps that need that number of, of colours. OK, so that's for a donut with one hole in it. How about going to pretzels, generalising to pretzels, where you, where you have several, several holes. If you've got several holes, how many colours are you going to need to colour the maps? And I'm sure you'll be delighted to know that the answer that Hayward himself gave was, well, you just take the number of holes, multiply by 48, add 1, take the square root, add 7, divide by 2, and take the integer part, as, as you'd expect. 
So, if you've got one hole, for example, G is 1. Uh, this gives you 1 plus 48, that's 49. The square root of 49 is 7. Add 7 is 14. Divide by 2 is 7. That gives you the right answer. Okay? And you can try that for other numbers as well. And what Haywood showed was, in fact, that given any surface with G holes in it, that this number of colours is sufficient. But what he didn't show was that there are maps that actually need that number of colours. <clears throat> and, and trying to prove that took a further 78 years to prove. Proving the Hayward conjecture, as it came to be known, turned out to be incredibly complicated. In fact, the proof broke down into 12 separate, completely separate cases. <clears throat> and I'd like to end up with an anecdote, <clears throat> because by 1967, 10 of the cases had been settled, mainly by the German mathematician Gerhard Ringel and the American Ted Youngs. Well, Ringel then had a sabbatical, so he went to California to work with Youngs on the remaining two cases, and in a couple of months, they managed to succeed in finishing the proof. Great rejoicing. The Hayward conjecture had been proved after all these years. <clears throat> well, later that year, Ringel was driving up the California Expressway when he was stopped by a traffic cop for speeding. And the cop looked at his driving license and said, Ringle, eh? Are you the one that solved the Hayward conjecture? <laughs> <laughs> well, Ringle was a bit taken aback by that. He said, yes. And it turned out that the traffic cop's son had been in Professor Young's calculus class, and the result was that Ringle just got let off with a warning. <laughs> and if that isn't a real-life application of map colouring, I don't know what is. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.